Section 1 of The National Geographic Magazine, Volume 8, September 1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hawaii. In October 2018. The National Geographic Magazine, Volume 8, Number 9, September 1897. Modification of the Great Lakes by Earth Movement by J. K. Gilbert, U.S. Geological Survey. The history of the Great Lakes practically begins with the melting of the Pleistocene ice sheet. They may have existed before the invasion of the ice, but if so, their drainage system is unknown. The ice came from the north and northeast and spreading over the whole Laurentian basin invaded the drainage districts of the Mississippi, Ohio, Susquehanna, and Hudson. During its wandering, there was a long period when the waters were ponded between the ice front and the uplands south of the Laurentian basin, forming a series of glacial lakes whose outlets were southward through various low passes. A great stream from the Erie Basin crossed the divide at Fort Wayne to the Wabash River. A river of the magnitude of the Niagara afterward flowed from the Michigan base across the divide at Chicago to the Illinois River, and still later the chief outlet was from the Ontario Basin across the divide at Rome to the Mohawk Valley. The positions of the glacial lakes are also marked by shorelines, consisting of terraces, cliffs, and ridges, the strands and spits formed by their waves. Several of these shorelines have been traced for hundreds of miles, and wherever they are thoroughly studied it is found that they no longer lie level, but have gentle slopes toward the south and southwest. Formed at the ages of water surfaces, they must originally have been level, and their present lack of horizontality is due to unequal uplift of the land. The region has been tilted toward the south-southwest. The different shorelines are not strictly parallel, and their gradients vary from place to place, ranging from a few inches to three or four feet to the mile. The epoch of glacial lakes, or lakes partly bounded by ice, ended with the disappearance of the ice field, and there remained only lakes of the modern type, wholly surrounded by land. These were formed one at a time, and the first to appear was in the Erie Basin. It was much smaller than the modern lake, because the basin was then comparatively low at the northeast. Its outline is approximately shown by the inner dotted line of the accompanying map. Instead of reaching from the site of Buffalo to the site of Toledo, it extended only to a point opposite the present city of Erie, and it was but one-sixth as large as the modern lake. Since that time the land has gradually risen at the north, canting the basin toward the south, and the lake has gradually encroached upon the lowlands of its valley. At a date to be presently mentioned as the Nipissing, the western end of the lake was opposite the site of Cleveland, as indicated by another dotted line. The next great lake to be released from the domination of the ice was probably Ontario, though the order of precedence is here not equally clear. 
Before the Ontario Valley held a land-bound lake, it was occupied by a gulf of the ocean. Owing to the different attitude of the land, the water surface of this gulf was not parallel to the present lake surface, but inclined at an angle. In the extreme northeast, in the vicinity of the Thousand Islands, the marine shores are nearly 200 feet above the present water level, but they descend southward and westward, passing beneath the lake level near Oswego, and toward the western end of the lake must be submerged several hundred feet. This condition was of short duration, and the rising land soon divided the waters, establishing Lake Ontario as an independent water body. The same peculiarity of land attitude which made the original Erie a small lake served to limit the extent of Ontario, but the restriction was less in amount because of the steeper slopes of the Ontario basin. Here again the southward tilting of the land had the effect of lifting the point of outlet and enlarging the expanse of the lake. There is some reason to think that the upper lakes, Huron, Michigan, and Superior, were at first open to the sea, so as to constitute a gulf, but the evidence is not so full as could be desired. When the normal lacustrine condition was established, they were at first a single lake instead of three, and the outlet, instead of being southward from Lake Huron, was northeastward from Georgian Bay, the outlet river following the valleys of the Matawa and Ottawa to the St. Lawrence. The triple lake is known to us chiefly through the labors of F. B. Taylor, who has made extensive studies of its shoreline. This line, called the Nipissing shoreline, is not wholly submerged, like the old shores of lakes Erie and Ontario, but lies chiefly above present water surfaces. It has been recognized at many points about Lake Superior and the northern parts of Lakes Huron and Michigan, and measurements of its height show that its plain has a remarkably uniform dip, at seven inches per mile, in a south-southwest direction, or, more exactly, south 27 degrees west. As will be seen by the accompanying map reproduced from Taylor, it crosses the modern shoreline of Lake Superior near its western end, thereby passing beneath the water surface, and it similarly passes below the surface of Lake Michigan near Green Bay, and below the surface of Lake Huron just north of Saginaw Bay. The southward tilting of the land, involving the uplift of the point of outlet, increased the capacity of the basin and the volume of the lake, gradually carrying the coastline southward in Lake Huron and Lake Michigan, until finally it reached the low pass at Port Huron, and the water overflowed via the St. Clair and Detroit channels to Lake Erie. The outlet by way of the Ottawa was then abandoned, and a continuance of the uplift caused the water to slowly recede from its northern shores. This change, after a time, separated Lake Superior from the other lakes, bringing the St. Mary's River into existence, and eventually the present condition was reached. These various changes are so intimately related to the history of the Niagara River that the Niagara time estimates, based on the erosion of the gorge by the cataract, can be applied to them. Lake Erie has existed approximately as long as the Niagara River, 
and its age should probably be reckoned in tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years lake ontario is much younger all that can be said of the beginning of great lake nipissing is that it came long after the beginning of lake erie but the date of its ending through the transfer of outlet from the mottawa to the st clair is more definitely known that event is estimated by taylor to have occurred between five thousand and ten thousand years ago the lake history thus briefly sketched is characterized by a progressive change in the attitude of the land the northern and northeastern portions of the region becoming higher so as to turn the waters more and more toward the southwest the latest change from great lake nipissing to great lakes superior michigan and huron involving an uplift at the north of more than one hundred feet has taken place within so short a period that we are naturally led to inquire whether it has yet ceased is it not possible that the land is still rising at the north and the lakes are still encroaching on their southern shores j w spencer who has been an active explorer of the shorelines of the glacial lakes and has given much study to related problems is of opinion that the movements are not complete and predicts that they will result in the restoration of the chicago outlet of lake michigan and the drying of niagara the importance of testing this question by actual measurements was impressed upon me several years ago and i endeavored to secure the institution of an elaborate set of observations to that end failing in this I undertook a less expensive investigation, which began with the examination of existing records of lake height, as recorded by gauge readings, and was continued by the establishment of a number of gauge stations in 1896. To understand fully the nature of this investigation, it is necessary to consider the difficulties that arise from the multifarious motions to which the lake water is subject if the volume of a lake were invariable and if its water were in perfect equilibrium under gravity its surface would be constant and level and any variation due to changes in the height of the land could be directly determined by observations on the position of the water surface with reference to the land but these conditions are never realized in the case of the great lakes where the volume continually changes and the water is always in motion the investigator therefore has to arrange his measurements so as to eliminate the effect of such changes consider first the influence of wind the friction of the wind on the water produces waves these are temporary and practically cease in periods of calm the perpetual ground swell of the ocean is not known on the lakes the friction of the wind on the water also drives the water forward producing currents the water thus driven against the lee shores returns in undercurrents but the internal friction of the water resists and delays the return and there is consequently a heaping of the water against lee shores and a corresponding lowering of its level on other shores during great storms these differences amount to several feet reaching a maximum in lake erie in october eighteen eighty six a westerly gale is reported to have raised the water eight feet at buffalo and depressed it eight feet at toledo for light winds the changes of level are much smaller but they are nevertheless appreciable 
and they have even been detected in the case of the gentle land and sea breezes which in calm weather are created by the diurnal cycle of temperature change on the land the water is also sensitive to atmospheric pressure if the air pressed equally on all parts of the lake surface the equilibrium of the water would not be disturbed but its pressure is never uniform as shown by the isobars on the daily weather map there are notable differences of pressure from point to point and within the length of one of the great lakes these often amount to several tenths of a barometric inch a column of mercury zero point one inch high weighs as much as a column of water one point three inches high and whenever the atmospheric pressure at one point on a lake exceeds the pressure at another point by the tenth of a barometric inch the water level at the first point is in consequence one point three inches lower than the water level at the second point when a cumulus cloud forms over the water there is a reaction on the water disturbing its equilibrium and the passage of a thunderstorm often produces oscillations attracting the attention of even the casual observer such sudden and temporary variations of pressure give rise to waves analogous to those caused by a falling pebble except that they are broad and low and these waves not only travel to all parts of a lake but are continued by reflection so that a local storm at one point is felt in the water surface at all points and for a considerable period the passage of the greater atmospheric waves associated with ordinary cyclonic storms and the impulses given by winds are also able to set the whole body of the lake in motion so that it sways from side to side or end to end like the swaying water in a tub or basin and these swaying motions are of indefinite continuance in the deeper lakes and probably in all the lakes they are so enduring as to bridge over the intervals from impulse to impulse such oscillations which appear at any point on the coast as alternate risings and fallings of the water with periods ranging from a few minutes to several hours are called seiches their amplitude is usually a few inches but at the ends of lakes is sometimes a foot or more the lakes like the ocean are swaying by the attractions of the sun and moon their tides are much smaller than those of the ocean and are even small as compared to the seiches but they are still measurable at milwaukee the lunar tide rises and falls more than an inch and the solar tide a half inch at chicago and duluth each tide amounts to an inch and a half and their combination at new and full moon to three inches water is continually added to each lake by rivers and creeks but the rate is not uniform usually a few freshets occurring within two or three weeks contribute more water than comes during all the remainder of the year water is also added in an irregular way by rain and snow falling directly on the lake it is subtracted by evaporation the rate of which varies greatly and by overflow which varies within moderate limits the volume of water contained in the lake being subject to these variable gains and losses is itself inconstant and the general height of the water surface therefore oscillates in average years the range of variation for lake superior is twelve inches 
for lakes michigan and huron twelve inches for lake erie fourteen inches and for lake ontario seventeen inches low water occurs normally in january or february for all the lakes except superior where it occurs in march high water is reached sooner in the lower lakes june being the usual month for ontario june or july for erie july for michigan and huron and august or september for superior figure four shows the character of the annual oscillations as given by averages of long series of years in a wet year more water enters the lake than leaves it and there is a net rise of the surface in a dry year there is a net fall a series of wet years produce exceptionally high water and a series of dry years exceptionally low so that the entire range of water height is considerably greater than the annual range the recorded range for lakes superior michigan and huron is between five and six feet for erie and ontario between four and five feet the accompanying diagram figure five of the oscillations of lake michigan illustrates the annual cycle and also the progressive changes from year to year being compiled from monthly means of gauge readings it does not show tides and seiches nor the oscillations of short period these various oscillations of the water though differing widely in amplitude rate and cause yet coexist and they make the actual movement of the water surface highly complex the complexity of movement seriously interferes with the use of the water plane as a datum level for the measurement of earth movements and a system of observations for that purpose needs to be planned with much care the main principles of such a system are however simple and may readily be stated the most important is that the direct measurement of the heights of individual points should not be attempted but comparison should always be made between two points their relative height being measured by means of the water surface used as a leveling instrument in the diagram figure six a c b is the profile of a lake basin a and b are fixed objects on opposite shores and we will suppose the water surface to have the position x x prime assuming the water in equilibrium all parts of the surface have the same height if the height of a above the water at x be accurately measured by the surveyor's level and the height of b above the water at x prime be similarly measured then the difference between these two measurements gives the difference in height between a and b after an interval of some years or decades the work is repeated the water surface then has some different position y y prime and the heights measured are of a above y and of b above y prime the difference between the two heights gives again the relative height of a and b and if earth movement has tilted the basin toward a or b the change in their relative height may be shown by the difference in the two results of measurement as the water is in fact not still but in continual motion the mere running of lines of level from a to b to the water does not suffice and it is necessary to determine from observations on the oscillating water surface what would be its position if still such observations are made by means of gauges these are of various forms 
but each consists essentially of a fixed point or zero close by the water and a graduated scale by means of which the vertical distance of the water surface from the zero is measured changes in the volume of the lake influence all parts of its surface equally and at the same time to eliminate their effects from the measurements it is only necessary that the gauge observations at the two stations be simultaneous the effects of wind waves can be prevented by breakwaters disturbances due to currents propelled by strong winds can be avoided by choosing times when there is little wind the effects of light winds can be approximately eliminated by taking the average of many observations and so can the effects of seiches and tides the effects of differences of atmospheric pressure can be computed from barometric measurements of air pressure and the proper corrections applied it is also possible by the discussion of long series of observations at each station to determine the local tidal effects and afterward apply corrections and the land and sea breeze effect may be treated in the same way in the investigation i was able to make consideration was given to these various sources of error but it was not practicable to take all desirable measures for avoidance or correction because the reading of gauges was only partly under my control gauge stations have been established on the great lakes at various times and at various places and the records of readings have been preserved in some cases the zeros of gauges were connected by leveling with benchmarks of a permanent character and in a few instances the gauges themselves are stable and enduring structures the most important body of information of this character is contained in the archives of the united states lake survey which were placed at my service by the chief of engineers u s a by searching the records i was able to select certain pairs of stations at which the relative heights of permanent points on the shore equivalent to a and b of the diagram had been practically determined twenty or more years ago at some of these stations gauges are still read at others i established gauges and ran the leveling lines necessary to connect them with the old benches at all of them observations were maintained from july to october eighteen ninety six and these observations in combination with the levelings afforded measurements that could be compared with those made earlier so as to discover changes due to earth movement it will not be necessary to give here the details of observation and computation as they are fully set forth in a paper soon to be printed by the geological survey but the general scope of the work may be briefly outlined as the tilting shown by the geologic data was toward the south-southwest stations were so far as possible selected to test the question of motion in that direction the most easterly pair were sackett's harbor and charlotte new york connected by the water surface of lake ontario see map figure seven from observations by the u s lake survey in eighteen seventy four it appeared that a benchmark on the old lighthouse in charlotte was then eighteen point five three one feet above a certain point on the masonic temple in sackett's harbor in eighteen ninety six the measurement was repeated and the difference found to be eighteen point four seven zero feet the point at sackett's harbor having gone up as compared to the point at charlotte 
0.061 foot, or about three-fourths of an inch. Similarly, it was found that between 1858 and 1895, a point in Port Colborne, at the head of the Welland Canal, as compared to a point in Cleveland, Ohio, rose 0.239 foot, or nearly three inches. Between 1876 and 1896, a point at Port Austin, Michigan, on the shore of Lake Huron, as compared to a point in Milwaukee, on the shore of Lake Michigan, rose 0.137 foot, or one and one-half inches, and in the same period a point in Escabana, at the north end of Lake Michigan, as compared to the same point in Milwaukee, rose 0.161 foot, or about two inches. There is no one of these determinations that is free from doubt. Buildings and other structures on which the benches were marked may have settled. Mistakes may have been made in the earlier levelling, when there was no thought of subjecting the results to so delicate a test, and there are various other possible sources of error to which no checks can be applied. But the fact that all the measurements indicate tilting in the direction predicted by theory inspires confidence in their verdict. This confidence is materially strengthened when the numerical results are reduced to a common unit and compared. The stations of the several pairs are at different distances apart. The directions of the lines connecting them make various angles with the theoretic direction of tilting, and the time intervals separating the measurements are different. To reduce the result to common terms, I have computed from each the rate of tilting it implies in the theoretic direction, south 27 degrees west. In the sixth column of the preceding table, the rate is expressed as the change in relative height of the ends of a line 100 miles long during a century. Compared in this way, the results are remarkably harmonious, the computed rates of tilting ranging only from 0.37 foot to 0.46 foot per 100 miles per century, and in view of this harmony it is not easy to avoid the conviction that the buildings are firm and stable, that the engineers ran their level lines with accuracy, that all the various possible accidents were escaped, and that we have here a veritable record of the slow tilting of the broad lake-bearing plain. The computed mean rate of tilting, 0.42 foot per 100 miles per century, is not entitled to the same confidence as the fact of tilting. Its probable error, the mathematical measure of precision derived from the discordance of the observational data, is rather large, being one-ninth of the whole quantity measured. Perhaps it would be safe to say that the general rate of tilting, which may or may not be uniform for the whole region, falls between 0.30 and 0.55 foot. While the credit of formulating the working hypothesis or geologic prediction which has thus been verified by measurement belongs to Spencer, it is proper to note that the fundamental idea of modern differential earth movement in the Great Lakes region was announced much earlier by G. R. Stuntz, a Wisconsin surveyor. In a paper communicated to the American Association for the Advancement of Science in 1869, 
he cites observations tending to show that in 1852 to 53 the water of lake superior stood abnormally high at the west end while it was unusually low at the east and he infers that the land is not stable the geographic effects of the tilting are of scientific and economic importance evidently the height of lake water at a lake's outlet is regulated by the discharge and is not affected by slow changes in the attitude of the basin but at other points of the shore the water advances or retreats as the basin is tipped consider for example lake superior on the map figure seven a line has been drawn through the outlet at the head of st mary's river in a direction at right angles to the direction of tilting all points on this line called the isobase of the outlet are raised or lowered equally by the tilting and are unchanged with reference to one another all points southwest of it are lowered the amount varying with their distances from the line and all points to the northeast are raised the water always holding its surface level and always regulated in volume by the discharge at the outlet retreats from the rising northeast coasts and encroaches on the sinking southwest coasts assuming the rate of tilting to be zero point four two foot per one hundred miles per century the mean lake level is rising at duluth six inches per century and falling at heron bay five inches where the isobase intersects the northwestern shore which happens to be at the international boundary there is no change lake ontario lies altogether southwest of the isobase of its outlet and the water is encroaching on all its shores the same tilting that enlarged it from the area marked by the dotted line of figure two is still increasing its extent the estimated vertical rise at hamilton is six inches per century the whole coast of lake erie also is being submerged the estimated rate at toledo and sandusky being eight or nine inches per century the isobase of the double lake huron michigan passes southwest of lake huron and crosses lake michigan all coasts of lake huron are therefore rising as compared to the outlet and the consequence apparent lowering of the mean water surface is estimated at six inches per century for mackinac and at ten inches for the mouth of the french river on georgian bay in lake michigan the line of no change passes near manistee michigan at escabana the estimated fall of the water is four inches per century at milwaukee the estimated rise is five or six inches and at chicago between nine and ten inches these slow changes of mean water level are concealed from ordinary observation by the more rapid and impressive changes due to variations of volume but they are worthy of consideration in the planning of engineering works of a permanent character and there is at least one place where their influence is of moment to a large community the city of chicago is built on a smooth plain little above the high water level of lake michigan every decade the mean level of the water is an inch higher and the margin of safety is so narrow that inches are valuable already the older part of the city has lifted itself several feet to secure better drainage and the time will surely come when other measures of protection are imperatively demanded 
looking to the more distant future we may estimate the date at which the geographic revolution prophesied by spencer will occur near chicago as already mentioned is an old channel made by the outlet of a glacial lake the bed of the channel at the summit of the pass is about eight feet above the mean level of lake michigan and five feet above the highest level in five hundred or six hundred years assuming the estimated rate of tilting high stages of the lake will reach the pass and the artificial discharge by canal will be supplemented by an intermittent natural discharge in one thousand years the discharge will occur at ordinary lake stages and after 1,500 years it will be continuous. In about 2,000 years, the discharge from Lake Michigan-Huron-Erie, which will then have substantially the same level, will be equally divided between the western outlet at Chicago and the eastern at Buffalo. In 2,500 years, the Niagara River will have become an intermittent stream, and in 3,000 years all its water will have been diverted to the Chicago outlet the Illinois River, the Mississippi River, and the Gulf of Mexico. End of section 1